We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 15. The Hogwarts High Inquisitor. They had expected to have to comb Hermione's daily profit carefully the next morning to find the article Percy had mentioned in his letter. However, the departing delivery owl had barely cleared the top of the milk jug when Hermione let out a huge gun. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week on the show, we have my dear friend Artie Wu joining us, who is the founder of Preside Life, which is an amazing organization that really holds Artie's, at this point, years and years of work around healing bliss, meditation. Artie was a businessman, was an entrepreneur and formed two successful companies, went to Harvard and to Stanford and was very successful in all the kind of outward trappings of the world and then felt this call to radically change what he was doing and to focus on accompanying people in their healing journeys. And I did his seven-day healing journey, just a series of audio recordings, and it just magically, well, I don't want to say magically, it really changed me. It changed how I think about my own life and my own healing journey. And so I'm so grateful to have Artie on the show this week. Welcome. Thank you, Casper. It's great to be here. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're here. Well, when you started the intro, you went into your podcast mode. <laughs> and I reflexively went into my, I'm on the treadmill listening to Casper mode. <laughs> and when you addressed me, I was like, oh, Wait, I'm supposed to say something? Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I'm so glad that we can take the conversations we've had off air, on air. And so I'm going to ask you to to share your story on this theme of healing, and then we'll talk a little bit after that. Wonderful. 
So um, when I read the chapter for this week, I realized it was, I was stunned by the fact that it was all about dreams. So what I thought I might do is actually talk about a dream that I have had. I had this dream probably three or four months ago and just kind of tell it and talk about its healing effect on me. In this dream, I'm swimming in San Francisco Bay. And as I'm swimming, I realize I'm actually following in the wake of this huge container ship. And this container ship is actually a container ship from a movie that I've seen in the last six months. It's called Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> and it's this, this huge party ship where there's alcohol flowing, loud music, pleasure and prestige, you know, money being thrown all over the place. And for me, you know, in the dream, when I realize I'm following the ship, I, I realize that the reason I'm swimming is because I pointedly in my life have refused to get on that ship. Mm. That's just like the wrong ship. I'm not getting on that ship. But at the same time, one of the realizations of this particular dream is that while I'm not on the ship, I'm still kind of casually in a loosey-goosey way following its general direction. And at that instant, the ship instantly turns into a different kind of ship where it's more like this Red Cross humanitarian ship stocked with medical supplies. And literally in the dream, I look at that and I'm like, okay, that's better. It looks good. But you know what? The bones of the ship are the same. It's prestige coming in a different form. And I reject this version of the ship as well. In fact, what I think I'm going to have to do is I think I'm going to have to scuttle the entire ship. And um, I mean, long story short, it accelerated my path of healing and gave me clarity for actually everything I've been doing in the four months since having that dream. Hmm. And so it's funny with regard to you know my sharing this dream, because in my actual work, I don't talk a lot about dreams publicly. It's just not something that I lead with when I am talking about the, the work that I do. But you know, there's tens of thousands of people who have come through my healing programs in particular, and dreams always come up again and again and again. And um, I've come to really see dreams as this inner part of a person hmm. that has been exiled, pushed away. And so it's gotten to such a point of you know, urgency that dreams are one of the last measures that a part of a person like that hmm. has to sort of come back to you when your guard is down, you're asleep, to, to try to get some SOS message back to you in terms of there is an issue here in your life. And that has sort of been my experience of dreams as they you know, appear in the healing processes of people. Artie, this is so interesting because one of the things that I remember taking away from when I first encountered your work was your idea of like the lost board member, like that there are mm. parts of ourselves that we often for very, very good reason have had to put aside or have kind of pushed to the edge of our consciousness so that we can make it through a difficult situation, but that with time, that kind of lost board member becomes more and more destructive the further we push it away. And so to think about dreams as a way in which perhaps some of the voices that we have pushed away internally show up. Well, yeah, I, I just think that's so uh, spot on because you know when we use the metaphor of the board of directors or the lost board member, it is this idea that you know we have these multiple kinds of voices within us. You know, there's the voice of fear and not getting you know humiliated, but there's also a voice of pursuing the things we actually love and care about in our lives, right? Mm. And 
trade-offs have to be made over the course of uh, a normal life. So we'll push certain parts of us away so that we can you know, get on with it mm. and not rock the boat. And that's very normal. There's nothing wrong with that. But these parts we push away, they are still board members. Mm. They still have a vote. Am I right in thinking that it's the integration of those different parts of ourselves? That's what makes up the healing process. Correct. Correct. It's when we're disassembled or unintegrated that we have to live these dual lives. We maybe suppress one bit, which means we don't even ever live that life. I think about this a lot as a gay man. Like for half my life, I was suppressing such a vital part of who I am. And so mm. that journey to integrating that part of myself was an incredible healing journey. And even now, I am still surprised at how I still have work to do on that. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm done with the gay thing. Like I've healed, like that's great. I'm ready to move on. And it turns out like, no, <laughs> like there's still more there. Absolutely. And it's such a poignant, thank you for sharing that example because, you know, I mean, in the case of being gay, right? You're, you're young, you don't know what's going on. Right. There's not a lot of sort of guidance and template. And you just realize that if I act in a certain way, there's gonna be trouble. Mm. So that trauma or that, you know, handwriting on the wall makes you metaphorically called an emergency board meeting, mm. <laughs> right? And the parts of you that are quote unquote gay get exiled. Mm. It's like, we're just not even going to do that. And they're like, but, but boss, we're, we're part of the overall life agenda. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right. You're, you're off. We voted you off the island. <laughs> so when I think about healing, it's like this trauma, very understandably, right? Very reasonably has metaphorically caused you or driven you to cutting off your own arm. Mm. And there's two problems with that. One, it hurts. Mm. And secondly, you're going through life without the use of your arm, mm. right? And you can get by. I mean, people do that all day long. So when we talk about healing, I always say, you know, there's nothing we're going to do to go back and change history. But what we can do is we can find that lost board member that you cut off and reattach it. And where it got cut off, it'll always still be sore. It will always hurt. And we're not going to change that, nor do we want to because it's a part of you. But at least you have the use of your hand back, right? It's not just a social justice thing. I get to be a gay man in society right. again. <laughs> and to myself, it's like that informs a part of your voice, a part of your action in the world. And, you know, the tremendous positive impact you have on the life of the world around you. It is a healing, not just for you as a single man. It's a healing for the entire world around you and everything you're doing, even, you know, this work with, you know, Harry Potter, sacred text and everything else you do. Uh, we're all richer when you heal that. Mm. Well, that's, that's very generous. So Adi, you know, Harry is in such pain in this book. And, and I think I have learned a lot to read this book differently through the understanding of his trauma. And I guess, mm. what would you say to someone who's in someone like Harry's position in terms of how how he can find some healing in the midst of, of this just awful situation that he's in? I mean, for scenarios like this, my overall, like, I don't know that I would say it out loud. It depends on the context, right? Mm. But my big upwelling of just feeling in my perspective when I see someone in pain is that you know, first of all, everything they're doing to try to ease that pain is very reasonable, mm. right? It may be misguided. It may be a little bit too much in one direction or another, 
but the impulse it's coming from is out of self-love, mm. right? So he's trying all this stuff to ease the pain. Every action, however misguided or having like, you know, unintended consequences, right? Mm. Is to me an action of self-love because you're trying to ease the pain. It's perfectly reasonable. So that's the first thing you're, you're trying. So that's great. Mm. But then the second thing is also, uh, there's nothing actually wrong with you. Mm. The pain you feel is coming from your wounds. And your wounds are not your fault mm. because nobody asks to be wounded. Yeah. Right? He didn't choose to get the scar. Right. He didn't choose to put his mom in that situation. Right. He didn't choose to have his mom make the sacrifice she did. Like, he didn't choose any of that. He didn't choose the Dursleys. Mm. <laughs> right? None of that. And it's not to say he's a victim, right? But it's like, we get this hand we're dealt. Given that hand, we're trying to pilot through the best we can. So first, it's not your fault. And second, you're doing great. Mm. If you put me right. in the same fighter jet as you, right. right? you're in a fighter jet, you're flying around, one engine's out, missiles are exploding all around you. Right, and you didn't choose to be there, and you're doing the best you can. If you put me in that same fighter jet, I would do no better. Mm -hmm. In fact, I probably would have gone down like years ago. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I think that's what I love about the trio, especially. And even in this situation where Hermione is kind of really introducing the Dumbledore's army idea to Harry, because Harry's like, oh, you don't, you don't, you think it's easy, but like, it's, I, I don't know how to do it. Yeah, it was all dumb luck. Right, it was, it was all, all dumb, dumb luck. luck. And, and, and Hermione's like, no, like, she's admitting her own shortcomings, like that she wouldn't have been as brave or as skilled or as just had the instincts that Harry does to survive these engagements with Voldemort over and over again. And so I'm just seeing that echo of what you're saying in, in the engagement. Well, also, it was dumb luck that he was wounded in well, the way exactly, he was. Well, exactly, exactly. And all of that counts. All of that dumb luck counts. Yeah. Well, Adi, I'm so, so grateful that you're with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do and for um, blessing you, us Casper. with your time today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Okay, Vanessa, it's time for our 30-second recap. Are you ready to roll? I am. Three, two, one. Here we go. So Umbridge gets appointed High Inquisitor, which means that she's going to start visiting all of the classes. Ron is like, I can't wait for her to visit McGonagall's class. And so she visits Trelawney, and it's really scary. And she visits Grubbly Plank, and she sort of approves. And apparently it went fine in charms. And then she goes to McGonagall's class. And McGonagall's like, I don't know how you expect me to teach if you're going to keep interrupting me. And um, Harry gets more detention, and so, like, there's more cutting. And then there's, like, this very sweet scene where um, Hermione has the thing when he puts his hand in. And then uh, Hermione sort of starts the DA. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes. Let's rock and roll. On your mark. Because I'm a dad. Let's rock and roll. <laughs> On your mark. Get set. Go. So in this chapter, everyone, including apparently Hermione for the first time, learns like at the different levels in which you can pass or fail Hogwarts classes, which is really interesting. And a Professor Grubbly Plank is like, yes, I'm a great teacher. And Professor Hagrid is still gone. And then um, Trelawney is like, oh, Umbridge, I think you're going to die. Uh, and Umbridge is like, mm-hmm. I don't believe you. And then Umbridge tries to take on McGonagall and like totally fails. And she keeps trying to interrupt and McGonagall's not having it. And that's the end of the chapter. What Trelawney says is you are in grave danger, which Umbridge is. Again, Trelawney is right.
She doesn't say you're going to die. She says you're in grave danger. And at the end of this book, she gets, like, taken into the forest by the centaurs. I think it's more like a Mufasa moment. Like, less taken into the forest, more like trampled over. (laughs) Yes. So, Vanessa, we're exploring this theme of healing. Where do you want to start in the chapter? I want to start in a really beautiful Hermione moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Harry has, like, just had to do this detention, and his hand had, like— just begun to heal and he has to just like rip it up all over again and Hermione is waiting for him with this like concoction this like brewed disgusting pickled thing for him to soak his hand in and it like feels so good and so soothing to him and there are just so many interesting things to me about this one is that I'm just reminded I know I just said this a few weeks ago but Harry has just never been given the opportunity to heal. Like, his hand has just started to heal, and Umbridge gave him another detention, so it's being ripped open again. We know that Quidditch, to a point that you've made, is very healing for him, and detention means he can't go to Quidditch. Mm. And then it's, like, constantly being compounded. And, like, I understand why McGonagall takes points away from him for getting detention, but it's, like, it just feels like this trauma is compounding upon him. And, like, Hermione can't do anything. She's not going to report this against Harry's consent, even though she thinks that Harry should go to Dumbledore or McGonagall. And so she does, like, the only thing that she can do. And I just think it's so beautiful. I mean, the whole end of this chapter has a strong healing theme because we also see this is another moment where Harry is really talking about what happened with Cedric, talking about what happened at the end of book four when he's last seen Voldemort. And I'm just comparing it with earlier on in the chapter where Umbridge says in her classroom, there will be no need to talk, right? Her strategy is so much around silence. And what we have at the end of the chapter is Harry breaking the silence and talking about his trauma. I just saw a connection there between like stifling the truth and opening the reality of the truth. And I love that Umbridge is like, I have good pedagogy, and she's having them read in class. Right. I mean, it's this amazing moment where it's a kind of allusion back to what we've seen before, where Umbridge instructs the room to read, and Hermione puts up her hand. It's the stifling of conversation both about the content of the book, which is violent, but also just this whole strategy of silencing. That's what's happened in the ministry, right? Like no one is able to speak up about the reality or their doubts because to voice something different than the the opinion coming from the top means you will be dismissed or means you will be disregarded in some way. And so you can just see how with Umbridge that is seeping into the into the school because now McGonagall's even saying, Harry, you can't say these kind of things, right? Like silence as a strategy is spreading everywhere. Yeah. And you see it. I just love the visual of so Hermione raises her hand and Umbridge, there's a line in the text that like Umbridge has clearly thought about this and like changed her tactics. So she, right, like she bends down right in Hermione's face so the rest of the class can't hear and says, like, what is it this time, Miss Granger? And Hermione just at full volume is like, I've already read the chapter. And Hermione's, again, like brilliant passive resistance or like nonviolent resistance to the silence is incredible. Well, what we see Hermione do in this chapter is echoed again at a ministry level 
with Umbridge being installed as the High Inquisitor, we hear of two women at the ministry who like resign in protest. And so there are these people who are stepping out of the system because you can choose to try and work within a system or you can try and step out of it. And I think we see more and more people who are like, I don't think the internal strategy is going to work, right? Because any voices that counter the power structure get silenced. So you have to speak from outside of the system, which is exactly what we're going to see the twins do, right? Like, that's the whole moment of their departure from the school. It's like, we think we can have most impact by playing by a completely different set of rules. And to do that, we have to leave. Yeah. So I think that as much as like we focus rightfully on the violence that is being done to Harry, I feel like at the end of the chapter where Hermione brings up the possibility of the DA, she is doing exactly what you just said. She's stepping out of the classroom system. She's like, the classroom system is going to just keep silencing us. We are not going to learn. And so we have to step out of it. And so she reacts to this violence not only with action for herself, but an offering of healing to Harry and for like the actual benefit, right? Like is is creating Dumbledore's army. Yeah. And I love that it's a collective healing as well, right? Like there's so much talk about self-help and self-care. And and I think sometimes we we lose sight of the collective nature of care and of healing. And so I love that from the beginning, the dream of the DA is one that is collective. Like Harry is essential to it because he's the teacher, but he is called into that role. You know, like one of those questions is like, how do you know if you're a leader? It's well, when other people ask you to lead. I think that's what's happening in this moment. It's like Harry is being called into something that he would not Like, I don't think he could have imagined this, actually, himself. It needs a group of people who want to be taught for the teacher to emerge in him. Yeah, I I mean, like, he has to be invited by Hermione and then mocked by Ron in order for it (laughs) to even begin to resonate with him as a possible idea. I, I love Ron's mockery in this moment where he says, um, he says, I don't know if I want to be taught by someone as dumb as him because Harry like doesn't get who Hermione means. It's very endearing. (laughs) This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom. So you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please. This is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who've recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com, 
Amazon.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own Fleur sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. It's interesting that we're talking about this moment, which could be seen as like a violent insurrection or like revolutionary fervor as a moment of healing. And I think in some ways it's because to have healing, you need justice, right? Like there has to be some element of structural change for the, the individual experiences of these people to really find healing. Like it's not like Harry should just go on like a spa retreat and learn to meditate and then like he's going to be fine. Like I feel like this moment points to an interaction between our individual well-being, our collective well-being, and that for a healing for both of those levels, there are moments when you need to like do some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, and healing is often very violent. To get rid of cancer, you need chemotherapy or surgery, right? Like surgery is the most violent thing that you can like ethically and consciously do to your own body, right? It's so violent. You're like asking someone to put you to sleep, throw a tube down your throat and stab you. But it's in order to start healing. There's a great line in Grey's Anatomy where a kid wakes up from surgery and he's in tremendous pain. And Dr. Derek Shepard says to him, this isn't disease pain. This is healing pain. And it's right like and they are different kinds of pain and they are both painful. Healing is incredibly painful, but that doesn't mean that it's not healing. I think that there are other ways that we will talk about the DA and that we should talk about the DA. And I think it is disruptive and I think it is violent, but I also think it's part of healing. Well, and I'm suddenly just remembering how especially bodies can heal in a way that actually isn't helpful. Right. right? Like if bones haven't been realigned properly, right? Like you end up with challenges for a much longer term rather than a moment of that kind of surgical violence, which allows for more effective healing long term. Because there are ways that we, that might look a little bit like healing, that are actually, to use Artie's language, it's more like shielding or soothing behaviors, which don't actually get to the crux of the issue. So maybe for me, it's eating. Me right? too. <laughs> or like it comes in many forms, right? We've all, everyone has learned different behaviors. Netflix. Netflix is a big one, right? And it feels like, oh, this this feels good, so it must be healing. Right. It feels like self-care. Right. And actually, it's just allowing our arm to like set in a way that's really not going to be helpful and we're stuck in a pattern that's not going to serve us long term. 
Vanessa, I want to point to another place where what Artie talked about really resonated with me in this chapter, which is that as Umbridge is going around all these different classrooms, we have a little moment of insight as she enters Flitwick's classroom. And we've seen McGonagall's strategy, which is just basically to like knock Umbridge down, right? Which is so satisfying. And we've seen Trelawney's strategy, which is just like not have a strategy and be run over by Umbridge. But what Flitwick does is like he invites her in as a guest. And that what Flitwick is doing here is kind of like inviting in the lost board member who, when we don't welcome them in, become more and more aggressive and disruptive and like lead us to sometimes very destructive behaviors. And so just that idea, we've talked about this before, of integrating as a sort of modality of healing. I I just saw an echo of that in this. It's very nice. I'm pure McGonagall on this, though. <laughs> You're probably right. You, like you just like you don't let cancerous things into your house. Right. But there's something about welcoming in the guest and saying, like, you are welcome to sit here and have food. I'm not going to listen to anything that you say, but I'm not going to let you, like, throw stones outside of the party and disrupt everything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's something there. Totally. I think that that is the right thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do. I just will never be good enough to do that. (laughs) What you are reminding me of, even though it sounds so hard, is that, like, Only eventually did I do what you're talking about with my younger brother. Like, I was very mad that my parents had another kid. (laughs) I was three and a half. I'd been the baby for three and a half years. I was real good at it. And, right, like, he wasn't going anywhere, and I resisted it. And I was the number one victim in that resistance, right? But, like, eventually, when I matured and turned, like, four and a half (laughs) and welcomed him into the family, right? Right. Like, accepting that, like, I am a big sister now, whether or not I like it, makes it easier for everyone. Yeah, I love that. It's, like, something that you can't change about the reality of life. And it's, like, how can you change your response to it? Because that's that's the thing that we do have control over. Yeah. Okay, so there's one last, like— Big moment of healing that I want to talk about. Where? So I could not believe myself, but I got so choked up at the end of this chapter where Shouty Harry makes this, like, beautiful speech. Mm. He, like, is confronting them about their misconceptions of what confronting Voldemort is like. And this just so got to me of... He says, you two sit there acting like I'm a clever little boy to be standing here alive, like Diggory was stupid, like he messed up and you just don't get it. That could have just as easily been me. And I just can't imagine like how long he's needed to say that. Mm. And to your point of silence being violent and him finally having the opportunity to express survivor's guilt. And I know that my grandfather always talked about surviving the Holocaust as sheer luck. And, like, if anybody ever asked him what he did to survive, he would say, I'm lucky, and then tell a series of stories about just dumb luck. And the survivors get to tell the stories, right? The winners write history. And I I just think that there's something really healing and acknowledging that just because you're the one who survived— doesn't mean that you were more righteous. And and where is the healing in that? Is is it about the honesty of not being special? I mean, because so much of Harry's story is about being the chosen one, right? The special one. And he's saying like, no. Yeah, I think it's in, you know, this is something that you've really taught me about like right-sizedness. Hmm. 
he's able to size himself correctly again and say, like, I didn't survive because I beat Voldemort. I survived because Voldemort decided not to kill me. Right. Right. Like, and that's completely out of my control. And I would imagine figuring out, you know, at least I'm somebody who figures out things by talking them through. Yeah. And so I am probably projecting, but I would imagine that this might be the first time that he's articulated to himself even, like, how scared he was. Yeah. It could have really just as easily been me. The only thing between me and Voldemort was death. I think you're so right. And I think it's so important that he's saying it out loud and that he's being affirmed, right? That's such a healing thing to share the story of what happened and for other people to affirm the reality of your story. That inherently is a healing process. And I think this probably is the first time he said it out loud. I mean, it has been months. Yeah. So as I've like alluded to on the podcast, but haven't expressly said, I've been dealing with endometriosis very acutely for like the last year or so. And I can't even tell you when I got my diagnosis, how affirmed I felt. Right. And then in having surgery, there was this like desire to hear about how bad it was mm. because I wanted proof that I wasn't making it up. Because you'd been in so much pain. Because I'd been in so much pain. So there's like this feeling of like, please tell me that you like actually found disease in there because otherwise. It doesn't make sense. Right. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. And like maybe I've been a baby and been like whining about nothing. Right. And so this desire to have like outside affirmation of things that like, you know, in your body to be true can just still be like so important. Yeah. So, Vanessa, this will be our last sacred imagination for a little while. And, you know, it really is one of my favorite. <laughs> oh, my God. Let it go. Let <laughs> no, it go. I actually, but I actually mean it. I uh, really like it. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And I'm particularly interested to see what you feel in your body as you hear this little snippet from our chapter. Harry felt his face grow warm and faked a small coughing fit over his roll. When he emerged from this, he was sorry to find that Hermione was still in full flow about OWL grades. So top grades O for outstanding, she was saying, and then there's A, no, E, George corrected her, E for exceeds expectations. Now, I've always thought Fred and I should have got E in everything because we exceeded expectations just by turning up for the exams. They all laughed, except Hermione, who ploughed on. So after E, it's A for acceptable, and that's the last pass grade, isn't it? Yep, said Fred, dunking an entire roll in his soup, transferring it to his mouth and swallowing it whole. So I was hairy. Uh-huh. And it was like that moment where all of your friends are talking about how much savings they have, <laughs> and you're like, me too. Or like that moment, right, where you just find out, like, how behind you are on something when everybody else is like, I've been setting for a month, you? And you're like, of course. Yep, me too. (laughs) And you're just realizing the like almost nightmarish, oh my God, I'm not wearing any pants in the middle of the street levels to which you are behind on something. And I'm like, everybody stop talking. 
So where did you feel that in your body? I also felt it in my face, which is like I often I get hot in my face. Yeah, I don't know. What about you? I really felt it in my stomach, mm-hmm. like that kind of pit of your stomach feeling. Where and like, then the acid buildup. And I felt it like rising through my chest. And I think it was like a nameless dread because I don't have to take exams anymore in my life. But there are <laughs> there are just moments where like the nameless dread will just come and take me. And it's not I wasn't Hermione in this scene because Hermione's actually like for her, it's a technical question. And I think. For the twins, right, they're, like, over it. They're no longer playing this game, so it's just whatever. But, yeah, for Harry and for Ron. It's like a mortal survival question. Yeah, especially as they've started talking about becoming auras. This has real consequences for them. And the fact that Harry doesn't know if the tea for troll thing is real or not. Yeah, like <laughs> I still don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> the other moment it reminds me of is when I was in my 20s and went out with people and right like we've talked about this where like they all drank and I didn't and they all made a lot more money than I did and there was the moment where they decided to split the check <gasps> and they were all talking about $60 as if like it was nothing and I of course had ordered like $9 in food it, it was like a preventative amount of money right I was like I will not be able to pay rent if I give you $60 and that moment of realizing like I actually have to say something like I can't fake this. It's just that moment of like, how am I so off from the rest of you? And I know why they could afford it and I couldn't. And it's not because they're more responsible than I am, but it's because they came from wealth and I I don't. Right. But just like that moment of like, oh my God, I have to like, I have to do this thing where I'm like, I'm going to put in $15 to cover my meal and tax and tip. It feels like it takes all the bravery and also all the humiliation. And the other thing is like, you know, we were just talking about this actually in terms of Harvard students. Almost inevitably, if a student is doing really poorly in a class, it's an indication of a a problem, right? Like an emotional problem, a family problem, a health problem, or a pedagogical problem, right? Like kids are capable of learning. We know this. And so it should be like an itch. It should be an indication that calls our attention to something, not a reflection on moral character. And so like the fact that he's not doing well, you know, and I don't know what it's indicating, if it's indicating that he's like has this trauma or if it indicates that he can't study because Umbridge is keeping him up late every night torturing him. I mean, both of those count. And that Snape loves failing him, right? right? It indicates a lot of things, but it doesn't indicate that Harry is lazy or stupid or anything else. Yes, 100% yes. This week's voicemail is from Charlene. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. When you guys released the Willpower episode, I just was thinking while I was listening to it that a huge factor in Mrs. Weasley's reactions to the Bogart and, you know, some of her arguments with Sirius um, and the general, like, stress she's under um, relates really strongly to the fact that her twin brothers were killed in the, you know, the first incarnation of the Order. Um, just like the page, like two pages before, Mad-Eye is talking about how Gideon Pruitt and Fabian Pruitt were 
killed by five Death Eaters and that they fought like heroes. And um, it's mentioned later or confirmed later, like Antonin Dalhoff was convicted of those murders. But those were her older brothers, and this she wasn't in the order that, at that time, but she still suffered that tragedy of having relatives um, die as part of the order. And so I really think that that informs a lot of her reactions, her inability to turn the bogart into something silly because of that you know deep connection to that kind of loss um and like the idea of facing that with her you know with her children this time you know it's impossible to kind of reframe that as something silly and and get past that bogart um and you also kind of see like how lupin you know sees that and knows immediately what is going on because you he was fighting with them in that war he was you know her brothers were his brothers of in arms um and so it's this extra level of trauma that is really informing everything that she's experiencing in this book you know it provides an extra rich counterpoint to the trauma that Sirius is reliving like these are both people who are experiencing reenactments of some of the worst parts of their lives. Um, So I just wanted to point that out. Um, I really enjoy the podcast and I look forward to future episodes. Charlene, this was such a helpful reminder for me. I think it's so easy to forget Molly's story as a context of why she struggles in that moment. And I'm so grateful to you for reminding me. It explains so much, makes so much sense. Vanessa, it's time for us to offer a blessing for someone in the pages of this chapter. Who are you going to bless this week? I am very excited to bless our dear Hermione. She does so many brave things in this chapter, so many wonderful things in this chapter, so many things worthy of blessing. She takes care of Harry's hand. She has the idea for Dumbledore's army. But a really brave, amazing moment is she says Voldemort's name And the line in the text is it was the first time she'd ever said Voldemort's name. And it was this more than anything else that calmed Harry. It's really hard for her to do this. And it means so much to Harry. And she makes a sacrifice in this moment that I think is really beautiful. So I want to honor anybody who makes a small sacrifice or a big sacrifice in order to help take care of somebody in need. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? Well, I want to bless Professor McGonagall because we've seen people really unsuccessfully navigate Umbridge. And she has this great line in the middle of the class where Umbridge keeps going, ahem, 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 ahem. And Professor McGonagall says, in cold fury, I wonder how you expect to gain an idea of my usual teaching methods if you continue to interrupt me. (laughs) I'm like, yes. It's just so satisfying when something like that happens when you're like, someone gets their comeuppance especially in a public way. (laughs) (laughs) I could not agree more. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or support us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 16, In the Hogshead, through the theme of respite. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are, for just a few more weeks, a part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we'd like to thank Charlene Green for sending in this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Palsell. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone.
the, the line in the text is moldy foldy. That the line in the text is moldy foldy, <laughs> and and then Harry goes, "Thank God." Holy moldy foldy, and then I want to scold you. And then, <laughs> and um. Within the Wires is an immersive fiction podcast by Janina Mathewson and Night Vale co-creator Jeffrey Craner. Each season, we unfold a brand new story strictly via found audio from an alternate 20th century. Season 4, The Cradle, is a story about a mother and daughter as they attempt to lead a family-centric commune surviving on the fringes of society. Subscribe to Within the Wires at nightvalepresents.com or wherever you get your podcasts.